podcast of the new year for Costume Drama Rewind. We're your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Chet. And today we're looking at The Lion in Winter. This film is from 1968. It's directed by Anthony Harvey and based on James Goldman's play of the same name, written in 1966. It stars Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn, Anthony Hopkins, Jane Marrow, John Castle, Nigel Terry, and Timothy Dalton. First, a synopsis that's as quick as we can make it. <laughs> Think of your all-time most awkward family Christmas. It probably doesn't hold a candle to Christmas of 1183 as celebrated in The Lion in Winter. King Henry II is entering the twilight years of his reign, and he's called together his wife, his sons, and their distant relation, Philip the King of France, to celebrate a Christmas court at the Palace of Shinon in France. Everyone is mad at everyone else for a multiplicity of reasons. Henry is mad at his wife and queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine, for plotting with their horrid sons to overthrow him. Eleanor is mad at Henry for keeping her in prison over sad fomenting of rebellion. <laughs> their eldest surviving son, Richard, is mad at Henry for scheming to pass him over for the throne in favor of younger brother John. But Richard is also mad at Eleanor for just generally being a manipulative schemer. Middle son Jeffrey is mad at just about everyone for, in his view, forgetting about him entirely. And Jeffrey is also the kind of person who pulled the wings off flies as a child. Youngest son John is mad at Richard and Eleanor for opposing his appointment as Henry's heir to the throne, and is also generally an enormous brat. Henry's mistress Alice, who is along for this cozy family Christmas, <laughs> is mad at Henry for trying to marry her off to one or more of his horrid sons. And their guest, Philip of France, is mad at Henry for talking down to him and also for jerking around Alice, who is his half-sister, and otherwise Philip is just living for the drama of it all. An impossibly complicated series of standoffs and intrigues takes place, in which everyone plots against everyone while also throwing around some truly magnificent personal insults. I took copious notes on the insults. At last, Henry finds out that everyone, even his favorite son John, is plotting against him, and he locks all three boys in the palace wine cellar. He then has a doozy of a fight with Eleanor and makes up his mind to divorce her, marry Alice, and have some new hard sons with her. Alice points out that his current sons will continue to be a threat to their potential new sons, so Henry makes up his mind to kill them all. He nearly goes through with it before breaking down. The boys are allowed to escape, and Henry gallantly escorts Eleanor back to the royal barge that will take her back to prison as they joke about living forever and make plans for their next fun family holiday. Maybe they'll go to Euro Disney and try to push each other off the roller coasters. First impressions for The Lion in Winter. I've always heard of this movie as being real cinema, with the real legacy actors dedicated to their craft. I always thought I'd get around to watching it, and I always thought that I'd appreciate it as real cinema. Maybe it's because I somehow thought the movie was actually supposed to be about Thomas Beckett being the uh, victim of internal miscommunications in the executive department. That is a movie, and it is literally called Beckett, and I promise we will get to it. Anyway, I spent a good chunk of time trying to figure out what is the plot of all this. And... Maybe it's because everyone in this family is creepily inappropriate at each other in some sort of way, but definitely not my favorite movie pick, other than enjoying the hot, hot, hot chemistry between Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. So all I knew about this movie going into it is that The West Wing borrows a famous quote from it, as if it matters how a man falls down. When the fall is all that's left, it matters a great deal. On the basis of that glorious quote, I, too, was expecting sort of staid mid-century drama, something like A Man for All Seasons. 
what we got was so much weirder. Oh my gosh. And a lot more complex, and in some ways a lot better. What really struck me about this movie is how funny it is. It is full of absolutely hilarious bits, mostly with various members of the family burning one another. They are my new snark icons. But yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie, and the whole thing was really strikingly modern and cynical and sophisticated, but also just profoundly weird at times. Oh, yeah. So now let's get down to the very weird heart of the matter. Henry gets a great quote in the movie. My life, when it is written, will read better than it lived. Henry, Fitz Empress, first Plantagenet, a king at 21, the ablest soldier of an able time. He led men well, he cared for justice when he could, and ruled for 30 years, a state as great as Charlemagne's. He married out of love, a woman out of legend. That's a pretty decent summary. Henry ascended to the throne in 1154 by right of both birth and conquest. His mother was Empress Matilda, granddaughter of William the Conqueror, and she spent 20 years fighting for her right to party and to the throne against her cousin Stephen of Blois. At 20, Henry set out from their land in France to launch an invasion that convinced Stephen to yield the throne to Henry upon his death. Henry's ascent to the throne established what became known as the single greatest English dynasty, the Plantagenets. The name of this royal house comes from King Henry's father, Geoffrey of Anjou, who always wore a sprig of broom flower. It's, uh, how do you say it? Plantagenista. Nerd. In Latin, in his hat. Their contemporaries knew them as the Angevins, though, after the Duchy of Anjou. Call them whatever you like. There's no denying that Henry had what one of our mutual favorite podcasts refers to as Rex Factor. He excels at the two things that were vital for a medieval king. Fighting and fornicating. He establishes the professional civil service in England, rebuilds the treasury, and wages an endless series of military campaigns to maintain and expand his empire throughout the British Isles and France. He also marries Europe's most eligible prize, Eleanor, the hereditary duchess of the massive territory of Aquitaine. Think the entire western half of modern-day France, pretty much. Henry is unfortunately a lot less successful at producing heirs to the throne that don't also openly hate him. His eldest son, known as Henry the Young King, has been dead for about six months when the movie opens. Young Henry is crowned by his father in 1170 as a sort of junior king, a position which he uses to make war on his father with the goal of securing even more power. This is when things begin to go south between old Henry and Eleanor, because she was suspected of supporting young Henry's rebellions. Young Henry died of dysentery in the summer of 1183. His father was so suspicious of another plot that he refused to come to young Henry's deathbed, but said afterward, he cost me much, but I wish that he'd lived to cost me more. Sad face. So that's where we pick up at the start of this movie. In an age where primogeniture wasn't quite as strong a concept as it would later become, Henry needed a new heir. His favorite son is also his dumbest and his most gormless son, John. His older, more capable, question mark, sons are understandably put out by this. So the first thing it's really important to get out there is that as far as we know, Henry never chucked his sons into a basement and then tried to force them all to knife fight him at the same time. <laughs> he probably should have. The family weren't together for Christmas of 1183 in Shinon. That gathering would come a year later at Windsor Castle, which is something that I really hope Liz and Phil think about while they're rattling around there right now in quarantine. Hi, Liz and Phil, who I'm sure are listening to this podcast. 
At any rate, this movie is largely a work of fiction, but with a basis in the actual family dynamics and in the various rumors that have circulated both at the time and in the subsequent centuries. We do know that Henry had a lot of affairs, and subsequently a lot of -of out-of-wedlock children. (laughs) Funny how that works out. One of his bastards, Geoffrey Plantagenet, not the same as Awful Geoffrey in the movie, ended up as Archbishop of York, which is a pretty sweet gig. Henry did also publicly acknowledge his longest-running affair, referenced in the movie, with one Rosamond Clifford, the daughter of a minor lord of the Welsh Marches. Henry put her up at the Palace of Woodstock for a while, but she dies by the age of 30, though the rumors that Eleanor stabbed her to death or had her poisoned are untrue, not least because Eleanor was already in prison by the time of Rosamond's death around 1176. But she woulda if she coulda. After Catherine Hepburn keeps going on about having bonked her husband's dad, Geoffrey of Anjou, I wanted to know, did she actually have her own affairs? The short answer is that we'll never really know. Henry's father actually died a year before Henry and Eleanor's marriage, while she was still in the process of separating from her first husband, the King of France, not Timothy Dalton, who we see in the movie. The movie also suggests that she slept with Henry's best friend turned best enemy, Thomas Beckett, but Eleanor and Beckett famously disliked each other, so again, probably not. She's also been accused of affairs with, like, everyone, from her own uncle to the Muslim commander Saladin. Granted, these rumors were probably just attempts to discredit her, given that a lot of them originate around the time when Henry was trying to annul their marriage. Huh. There were other rumors, repeated by Eleanor herself in the movie, that when she rode with the army in the Crusades, she did so bare-breasted. It's all part of the legend of Eleanor as a scandalous woman. When in reality, she was simply brilliant and well-educated, who commanded her own armies at times, served as regent more than once, so therefore had to be evil and slutty, am I right? Obviously. They don't even get to come for Christmas in the movie, but Henry and Eleanor also had a bunch of daughters who are really interesting. The eldest, Matilda, married the Duke of Saxony, and one of her sons became the Holy Roman Emperor. The second daughter, Eleanor, became Queen of Castile and ended up holding power almost equivalent to that of her husband, which, again, wouldn't have been super common in the Middle Ages. The youngest, Joan, became Queen of Sicily and, like her mother, commanded her own armies on the battlefield. Altogether, the daughters of Henry and Eleanor are a lot more interesting and consequential than their horde brothers. Finally, the big reveal halfway through the movie, with noted drama llama Philip of France egging everyone on, is that Henry's oldest son Richard, the future Richard the Lionhearted, is gay. There have certainly been some historians who asserted this. The possibility seems to rest on two points of evidence. First, that Richard and his wife had no children together. There are obviously loads of other reasons that would explain that, not least that he spent most of their marriage off on crusade, and we do know that he had at least one child out of wedlock. Historians favoring the thesis that Richard was gay or bisexual also point to one chronicler who records him sharing a bed with Philip. Sharing a bed, even between two men, was much more common and much less sexually loaded in the Middle Ages than in modern times, and the historical consensus today has largely settled on the idea that these two pieces of evidence alone aren't enough to decide anything about Richard's sexuality, but the rumor certainly persists. So, what happened after this exploration of happy family ends? Well, predictably, Henry's sons continued to rebel against him for the next six years, with Philip of France giving considerable support to the rebellions. Finally, in 1189, they mounted a final rebellion, and Henry learned that his favorite son, John, has joined against him. John sucks. And yet still, he's so incompetent, I find it amazing. Broken by the news, he retreats to Shannon Castle, where they celebrated Christmas in the movie, and he dies. 
Richard takes the throne and holds it for 10 years, spending very little of it in England. Eleanor is freed from prison and serves as a regent on Richard's behalf while he's off crusading, continuing in her role as a major player in European affairs. Geoffrey had died, even before their dad, in a jousting accident. So after Richard dies in 1199, the throne goes to John. Eleanor dies in 1204 while John is still king. As for John, you probably know him as the mainless, thumb-sucking lion in Disney's Robin Hood, the proverbial bad King John, that phony king of England. He is so bad at kinging that in 1215, his barons force the Magna Carta on him. Alice marries someone else and takes herself out of the narrative. Her great-granddaughter is Eleanor of Castile, who marries the Plantagenet king, Edward I. William Marshall, who we mentioned as one of the inspirations for Heath Ledger's character in A Knight's Tale, is actually in this movie. He doesn't really seem to have that much to do on screen, but in real life, he's a major player, and he continues to be the Plantagenet's babysitter, literally. After King John died in 1216, he was regent for the nine-year-old King Henry III. For his trouble, he's created the first Earl of Pembroke, and through one of his granddaughters, he's the ancestor of every English monarch from Henry VIII forward. You go, William Marshall. So now the big question. How many hats, in this case, crowns, are we awarding to the line in winter? Okay. Ever since listening to that Rex Factor episode on Henry II, I've been telling everybody that his- Everybody? Everybody. You're a lot of fun at parties. I've been telling everybody that his family is basically like the Bluths in Arrested Development. Henry is George Sr., Eleanor is Lucille, John is Job, etc. And lo and behold, similar to Lucille's I don't care for Job, Catherine Hepburn says in that mid-Atlantic accent, I don't much like our children. I felt so validated. Also, with being called a woolly sheepdog and wearing what looks like a poncho for casual wear, Henry II reminded me of the Swamp King guy from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. However, all of this being said... I'm going to go with a 2.5 crowns because it is really, really long. And I just feel with like the plot being mostly talking, it's really better suited for the stage. So if we're talking about contemporary film and television that we couldn't stop thinking about (laughs) while watching this movie, I could not stop thinking about the movie that I forced you to watch last month under duress. Mm -hmm. Love Actually. Just every time Catherine rips on one of her kids, I kept thinking of Emma Thompson talking about my horrid son Bernard oh so casually. (laughs) And I didn't really know what to think of this movie at first, especially since you kept sending me panicky texts about the weirdest bits. But I ended up really enjoying it. As I've said, I am a monster fan of The West Wing, so a movie where people stand around and talk at each other wittily is really solidly in my wheelhouse. So much of this movie is just genuinely funny, and the acting is a masterclass. Where I'm downgrading it is in fictionalizing so much of the drama in a family where you literally did not need to make up any of the drama. So on that basis, I'm awarding The Lion in Winter a solid four crowns. Finally, a few sundry other notes. The film opens very dramatically with intense Latin chanting and close-ups of gargoyles while the intro credits roll. According to the website Movie Music, the composer for the film, John Barry, used 12th century Latin texts and music to inform the music that he wrote for the movie. He thought that choral music would, quote, represent the sensibilities of 12th century English courts, as well as speak to the dominion of the Church of Rome. I'm not really sure if it did the second part of that. But all the chanting through the movie definitely does a good job setting the mood, which is intense and dramatic. Definitely speaks to my sensibilities. (laughs) So it's time to update our regular actor count. 
We have no repeat actors here, but we are noting a few that are sure to make a return to the podcast at some point. This movie was Timothy Dalton's first role, but he went on to play a whole bunch of costume drama roles, from Lord Darnley to Rhett Butler. But his most important role ever is, obviously, Simon Skinner, a slasher of prices from Hot Fuzz. Peter O'Toole played Henry II not only in this film, but also in the movie Beckett. Sir Anthony Hopkins played his share of historical figures, from our homeboy Charles Dickens (laughs) to my stealth candidate for favorite president, John Quincy Adams. Nigel Terry played approximately one quadrillion costume drama roles, but the most interesting slash ironic of those is that he played Roger Mortimer, a probable regicide of King Edward II, who is, of course, a direct descendant of Nigel Terry's character, Awful King John. And then, of course, there is Catherine Hepburn, who is an actual direct descendant of Eleanor of Aquitaine, and who we're very excited to announce will be returning to the podcast soon as we bring you Joe March Madness filling out the definitive Little Women bracket. Visit us on Instagram or Facebook to get your blank bracket and follow along starting next month. Henry II compares himself to King Lear early on in the movie. Now, most of us know about King Lear because of the Shakespeare play, which is written well after the life and times of the Plantagenets. However, it's actually based on an old legend which Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote down in Historia Regnum Britannae in the 1130s, so Henry very well might have been familiar with it. This telling of the story is similar to the Shakespeare version, but King Lear and Cordelia live to take the throne. I also got some Shakespeare vibes from other parts of the movie, in particular the scene where like everybody is behind that curtain in King of France's room. Very reminiscent of Polonius getting stabbed in Hamlet. And plenty of daddy issues there, too. <laughs> so many daddy issues. <laughs> when Alice first shows up in the movie, I noticed how modern and non medieval her hair looked. If a period drama is going to get something wrong, it usually does seem to be hair and makeup for women. Sometimes it's because the beauty ideals of the time depicted would seem ugly or just very distracting compared to when the movie is made. And sometimes they do it specifically because they want something from the current era for audiences to latch onto, essentially. It's like their little passport to take them back into the story. And in the case of Lady Jocelyn from A Knight's Tale, who knows? Hashtag inexplicable feather headdress thingies. But I was interested in what the costume designers did in this movie to reflect the history. IMDB says that most of the costuming is pretty muted, except for Eleanor's bright dresses to reflect the colors and styles that she would have seen on a crusade in the Middle East. The actors also had to wear their costumes for as long as possible before they did the filming, so the clothing would look more worn in and less 20th century level pristine. And the scarf thing that Eleanor wears around her head and neck for most of the movie is called a wimple, which the effigy on her tomb in Anjou depicts her wearing. A wimple is also traditional non-head garb. And while I totally flagged her eyeshadow and lipstick as historically inaccurate, my Google searches did turn up some stuff that suggested that she was introduced to makeup while on crusade. But what Catherine Hepburn is wearing probably doesn't resemble this. And while we're on the topic of historical accuracies, I have no idea why Eleanor makes a reference to syphilis, which did not get recorded in European history until like the late 1400s. Insert your own jokes here. (laughs) So it's always interesting to me when filmmakers choose to really, really invest in accuracy for some things and then really not for others. I started watching The Spanish Princess over the holidays, and on one hand, the showrunners are like, hey, we got permission to film in the Alhambra Palace, isn't it magnificent? 
And on the other hand, Catherine of Aragon runs around with an $8 headband from Forever 21 on her head for most of her scenes. I'm embarrassed for her. <laughs> Lion in Winter is kind of like that. The hair and costuming aren't super historically accurate, but the filming locations are fabulous. Their stand-in for Shannon Castle is Montmajor Abbey, a fortified Benedictine monastery in the south of France that began construction in the 10th century. They also used Pembroke Castle for a couple of scenes, which was also constructed in the 10th century and would eventually come into the possession of our boy William Marshall when he's created the Earl of Pembroke. The castle is also famous as the birthplace of my historical nemesis, King Henry VII. Hashtag nerd. Back when he was playing old Henry Tudor. The filmmakers used some wonderful locations, but they also worked really hard to convey the dirt and chaos of a royal household in the Middle Ages. Rushes on the floor with spilled food and dogs scavenging during a grand diplomatic dinner and just a general layer of filth over everything. I would not have done well in the Middle Ages. I just really like to wash. But I will note that the scenes that depict Christmas trees and decorations and greenery, that would certainly not arrive for at least a few hundred more years. That was weird. If you're looking for a book recommendation, the primary text that we used for this episode was written by my celebrity crush and historian Honey, the British writer Dan Jones. He has a book on the Plantagenets that's absolutely terrific, and that's also been made into a four-part miniseries, Britain's Bloodiest Dynasty, that he narrates and presents. Next time on Costume Drama Rewind. Have you heard there's a rumor rinsing Petersburg? We are in fact going from one movie that takes a kernel of truth and turns it into drama to another movie that takes a kernel of truth and turns it into drama, but also there are songs and an anthropomorphic bat. The Lion in Winter may have been new to us, but we both grew up with DreamWorks animated film Anastasia, and we have 20 years of thoughts about it. Join us to hear them all, and also to find out if Laura keeps me from bursting into song. The answer is yes, always. Heart, don't fail me now. Courage, don't.